For you have not come to what may be touched, a blazing fire and a darkness and gloom and a tempest and the sound of a trumpet and a voice whose words may the hearers speak beg that no further messages be spoken to them. For they cannot endure the order that was given. If even a beast touches the mountain, it shall be stoned. Indeed, so terrifying was the sight that Moses said, I tremble with fear. But you have come to Mount Zion and the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, and to innumerable angels and festal gathering, and to the assembly of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven, and to God, the judge of all, and to the spirits of the righteous made perfect, and to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. See that you do not refuse him who is speaking. For if they did not escape when they refused him who warned them on earth, much less will we escape if we reject him who warns from heaven. At that time, his voice shook the earth, but now he has promised. Yet once more I will shake not only the earth, but also the heavens. This phrase, yet once more, indicates the removal of things that are shaken, that is, things that have been made, in order that the things that cannot be shaken may remain. Therefore, let us be grateful receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken. And thus, let us offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe, for our God is a consuming fire. This is the word of the Lord. Good morning, you who have come to Mount Zion. If you don't know who I am, my name's Chad. I'm the pastoral intern here, and it is a joy to serve as pastoral intern here. This morning, we're going to be continuing our series through the book of Hebrews. And as you heard, just read, we'll be in chapter 12, verses 18 through 29. I have titled the sermon, The Unshakable Kingdom. Pretty, uh, pretty based off the text here. Um, I can't think of the word. Um, I'm excited to, to preach from Hebrews 12 to you guys this morning. Really excited. I'm always excited to preach God's word. Uh, I think this is one of the reasons, if not the reason, God has placed me on planet Earth. But if you know me, and I don't want to be so presumptuous that you all know me because I'm still kind of new here, only been here since January, you may remember one time a year ago I shared my story. And a big part of my story, I'm not going to share my whole story again, but a big part of my story, some of you remember, is the sport of track and field. That used to be a big part of my life, and God has used it to shape me in a big way. And in the hindsight, I can look back and I can think of illustrations and lessons that I can learn from having run uh, track and field for so many years of my life. And so in Hebrews 12, you know the theme is a race. And I'm just, uh, I've been especially loving these sermons because uh, I know what it's like to run a race. Um, I wasn't an ultra marathon runner. I guess as a Christian, spiritually I am now. I was a sprinter. Um, but I want to start with a story from my past experience, not because I want to share about my past experience so badly, but because I think it's a really good illustration for what I'm about to tell you guys this morning, what God's going to tell us through his word. So my senior year of high school, uh, we had one of the best boys track and field teams in the state. We had good distance runners, good sprinters, good throwers, and 
we knew there was a chance that we could win the state championship. And this was my senior year. And what athlete in their senior year doesn't want to end their career winning a state championship? And my event was the 400 meters. If you don't know track, that's one lap around the track. It's a long sprint. And what I love about the 400 is that you, you always got, I always got two opportunities to run it in every track meet because there's an open 400, which is just where you run alone out of the starting blocks. And then there's the four by 400 meter relay. Again, if you don't know track, four people each run one lap around the track. There's a baton, you pass the baton. I think you get it now. Something I really liked about the four by four also was that it is at the end of every track meet is the four by four from first grade all the way through the Olympics in Kenya, in America, in Russia, in any competitive track meet that I know of, the 4x4 four four is always the last event. And I love that because if the meet was coming down to the line, the pressure was on in the 4x4. Four four. You had to compete really well in the 4x4 four four in order to do well in the meet. So that's the setup. So my senior year, we're warming up for the 4x4. Four four. We know that it's a tight race between my high school, which is Fort Collins High School. That's where I was born and raised, and Smoky Hill High School. We knew it was going to be tight. We knew our performance in the 4x4 four four was indicative of how we would do as a boys' team in state. So we're warming up in this special area at Jeffco Stadium, and we see not one, not two, but three of our coaches come over to the warm-up area, and they beckon us over. This is kind of rare. Usually it would just be one coach, either the head coach or the sprints coach, and it would be after our warm-up, and it would basically be like a pump-up speech, or he would tell us the order. Usually we knew the order, but sometimes he would tell us the order. But three coaches, head coach, sprints coach, and another assistant, stop your warm-up and come over here. So we do. I think this is weird, and we go over to them, and they say, guys, we really just had a big debate on whether or not to tell you what we're about to tell you. But obviously the debate was won and we're gonna tell you this. You guys have done so well over the last two days of this state championship track meet that you're already state champions. You guys could, you guys could get disqualified, you could drop the baton, you could get last place or a disqualification and Smoky Hill could win the four by four and you guys are state champions. Congratulations. And knowing me and you guys knowing me, I probably got teared up. I probably started crying because I was so excited. What a way to end my senior year. And some of those guys were great friends. One of them is still a great friend of mine. And our coaches walk away. And I have goosebumps. I'm probably wiping the tears out of my eyes. And my guys start walking away to warm up again. I said, no, 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 come back. I'm a team captain. This is my senior year. And I didn't tell you, but we also have one of the best four by fours in the state. And so we put our arms around each other, and I say, you guys, I'm so proud of you guys. You've competed so hard. You're some of my best friends. But doesn't this make you want to go out and run the race set before us hard? Like, the pressure's off now. But shouldn't, don't we want to go run as hard as we can with all of our hearts? And my guys are like, of course, Chad. That's what we want to do. And climax of climaxes, we went out and won the 4x4. Four we were the state champions, not only as a boys team, but in the 4x4. Four four. And as I thought about sharing that story with you guys this morning, I was thinking about all the other scenarios that could have played out. After being informed that we were state champions, 
We could have gone up to the concession stand and had a nacho and a hot dog eating contest. Then we could have gone back and run the race, and whoever threw up lost. We could have gone up there and eaten nachos and hot dogs and not run the race. We could have just pulled out. Or we could have still run the race, but just gone through the motions. Like, who cares? Let's change the order up. Let's run the first half of our leg backwards. Let's be goofy. Or what about this scenario? What if we didn't compete very well overall at the state championship, and our coaches informed us that no matter what, we would get fourth place overall as a boys' team, no matter how we did in the 4 by 4 Would we have become discouraged or overwhelmed? One more scenario. What if we were state champions as a boys' team, but our coaches didn't come tell us before running the 4 by 4 Would the pressure have been too much for us? Maybe a couple of my teammates were so nervous they could barely think straight and they wouldn't have performed as well with all that pressure. Knowing that we had guaranteed victory motivated us to run hard with genuine gratitude. I'm not just saying that because we're going to find it in the text this morning. I remember thinking, man, I am so grateful for this team, for my coaches, and for this sport. I mean, not a lot of people love running in circles, but I did. It did a lot for my life. And I was so thankful for that sport. And I wasn't going to disrespect it by going out and running easy or soft or pulling out of the race. And I believe that is the point the author of Hebrews is trying to make in this passage. We're still in chapter 12. Remember, the chapter started with the metaphor of the Christian life as a race. It reminded us of the cloud of witnesses that has gone before us that encourages us to run the race of faith, to lay aside weights and sins and run with endurance the race set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and the perfecter of our faith. Last week, Josh's sermon title was Roadmap for When the Race Gets Hard. We were reminded of God's gracious discipline in our lives and how he uses it to train us in righteousness and holiness And when the race gets hard, we were encouraged to consider Jesus, to remember our adoption into God's family, to receive the discipline of the Lord, and to respond again by what? By running. And to continue the running metaphor this morning, the author wants his audience and us to know the only race in which victory is guaranteed is the race of faith in Jesus Christ. The way the text says that is we've been given a kingdom that cannot be shaken. That's the race his original audience had started. And the race that we all have started for those of us who follow Jesus, it comes with a guaranteed victory. The point of this passage, I believe, is motivation. We know that the race is going to be hard. If you've lived more than five years, you know the race is hard. If you've followed Jesus more than a few years, you know the race is hard. And so often when the race gets hard, we're prone to trust in things that aren't trustworthy, to go back to things. We're prone to revert back to trusting in ourselves and our performance or a relationship or the internet or Fox News or CNN. We're frail and we're fragile and we're prone to trust in transient and temporal things. Remember, the original audience was considering going back to Judaism. Because their race had gotten tough. Scholars believed that they were being persecuted, 
potentially even by friends and family because of their newfound faith in Jesus. They'd been kicked out of synagogues. And we know based on chapter 10, 34 of Hebrews that some of their property had even been plundered. Suffering, when the race gets hard, can really shake our confidence in God's unshakable kingdom. But sometimes suffering can cause us to see that we are already trusting in a shakable kingdom and to turn our eyes back to Jesus. And the point this morning from the text, from the passage, and in the sermon is this. Through Christ, we've come to Mount Zion, which is an unshakable kingdom. And therefore, we should be grateful in worship. And another way to, to say to be grateful in worship is run hard. Don't turn back to that which cannot save. That's the call this morning. The text can be broken into three sections. That's how I've broken it down. Verses 18 through 21 I've titled The Magnificent Reality of Mount Sinai. Verses 22 through 24, the more magnificent reality of Mount Zion. And 25 through 29, the magnificent refusal or reception. Before we dive into the text, join me in praying. Heavenly Father, you are great and greatly to be praised. You're worthy of our adoration, our hearts, our lives. Lord, because of what you've done for us in your Son, Jesus Christ, you are worthy. And so I pray this morning as I preach and your people listen that we would want to run hard. Not earning our way to you, but because it's been earned for us by Christ. Lord, you've come to us in Christ and guaranteed our victory. And so we believe that we can face anything, any suffering or trials that come our way, because we know we will feast in the house of Zion, and we long for that day. Lord, I long for that day. We, your people, can't wait when we no longer only walk by faith, but by sight as well. We long to see you in your glory, and praise you for all of eternity. Speak through me this morning, your servant. Pray for those in here who don't know you and don't follow you, that you would draw them to yourself, that they would see their sin and their need of a Savior and come to Christ. Pray this in Jesus' holy, precious name. Amen. So first we consider the magnificent reality of Mount Sinai, verses 18 through 21. I will reread it. It's not very much. For you have not come to what may be touched, a blazing fire, and darkness and gloom and a tempest and the sound of a trumpet and a voice whose word, words made the hearers beg that no further messages be spoken to them. For they could not endure the order that was given. If even a beast touches the mountain, it shall be stoned. Indeed, so terrifying was the sight that Moses said, I tremble with fear. As you know, or as you probably know, these verses are referring to the giving of the Ten Commandments on Mount Sinai described in Exodus chapter 19. After God has rescued his people out of slavery in Egypt, he enters into a covenant with them at Mount Sinai. God tells Moses that in a few days he's going to come to the people on the top of Mount Sinai, but that only Moses can actually go up the mountain, and no one else 
Not even an animal can touch the mountain, or they must be stoned or shot with an arrow. So the morning of God's arrival on the top of the mountain comes, and there are thunders and lightnings and darkness and gloom and very loud trumpet blasts. Think about that for a moment. Try to be there. I don't know how many of you live in Severance. I don't know where all the storm was, but 10 days ago, there was a lightning and thunderstorm in the middle of the night. At least it was over my house in Severance and kept me up for two hours. My, light, my room was just lighting up with lightnings and it was thundering and I, would, I kept going outside as if like, okay, I'm going to check if this lightning is getting any closer. And that's nothing probably compared to this scene at Mount Sinai. The presence of God is amazing. It's magnificent. I couldn't get away from that word. That's why I used it in all the points this morning. This whole text is just magnificent, everything. But it was also terrifying. The people who heard the voice of God begged that God would stop talking, and Moses trembled in fear. This was meant to show people the absolute unapproachableness of God. He is holy, holy, holy. This scene and this mountain represent the Old Covenant. Remember, it's not called the Bad Covenant or the Irrelevant Covenant. Paul says about the law and the Old Covenant in Romans 7.12, the law is holy and the commandment is holy and righteous and good. The law was and is a good thing. We grow in our understanding of God's holiness and our sinfulness as we read this scene and consider the Old Covenant. That's a very good thing. God is holy, holy, holy. He's just as holy now as He was then. And we're tempted, and sadly, in many of our churches, I was just talking with a brother this week, he said he just recently read a Barna study that said 50% of Christians in our churches in America believe the God of the Old Testament is different than the God of the New Testament. God isn't a God of holy wrath in the Old Testament and a God of gracious love in the New Testament. He's both holy and wrathful, gracious and loving in Old and New Testaments. The purpose of the law was to show mankind the holy and righteous standard of God, which flows from His character, from who He is. His requirement for His standard for obedience for us and Israel was personal, perpetual, and perfect obedience to the law. Therefore, we're meant to see the law and know that we fall short and cast ourselves onto the mercy of God. The law is meant to be a mirror that shows us our sinfulness and that no one can attain righteousness by the law because the law isn't able to do that. I was reminded this past week as I watched a documentary with some friends from community group, the law is a mirror. One pastor said this, the, the law is a mirror. You see you have something stuck in your teeth in the mirror, but you've never met someone who tries to take the mirror off the wall and floss their teeth with the mirror. The mirror just shows them their need for a toothpick or a flosser. For the people of God, our relationship with Him by the law was not the final word or the final way that God wanted to relate to His people. It was temporary. We know after spending all these weeks in Hebrews that the whole Old Covenant was meant to point the people of God to the person and work of Jesus Christ, the great high priest. 
Paul says that the law, because of our sinful nature, was a ministry of death. 2 Corinthians 3. It was his ministry of death and condemnation. But it came to God's people with much glory. But the author of Hebrews says, you haven't come here. You have not come here. Most of you in here, and me, weren't practicing Jews before we came to Christ. So in our minds, when the race gets tough, or even when the race isn't tough and we're just running the race, we don't think that we're turning back or living in the Old Covenant. But I think we'd all be surprised to hear how many of us struggle with performance-based righteousness. We tend to live out a truncated gospel, saved by grace, sanctified by works. Or at least, saved by grace, keep God happy by my works. My spiritual disciplines have been really good this week. He's extra happy with me. My spiritual disciplines have been bad this week. He's really disappointed in me. That is a performance-based righteousness, and that is a miniature Sinai that you're running to and living in. And me too. Maybe you don't struggle with that. But maybe you turn to a relationship. Your spouse or a deep friendship. Those are great gifts from God. But we must not say of these people, you are my refuge and strength a very present help in trouble. That is reserved for God alone. We must not ask of a relationship what it cannot provide, what it was not made to provide. Maybe you turn to the internet. All of us have these supercomputer phones in our pockets. We can jump on the internet anytime. We go there for comfort, for motivation. Maybe we go to social media or certain blogs. Maybe you just want to Purchase something on Amazon for a pick-me-up when you're feeling sad. Embarrassingly, I admit that. I don't know why when I'm struggling, I think if I just like bought a new pair of shoes or even just like something small like a new belt or a new book, I'd feel happier instead of going straight to God, the very present help in trouble. Maybe, and this one might hurt, I was kind of scared to write this one, but I'm going to go there. Maybe you turn to politics or a presidential candidate to give you hope. I fell into that in 2016 and 2020. I thought our presidential candidate would make the kingdom of God more or less shakable. And that's a low view of King Jesus and his kingdom. But as Christians, the place we've come, the author reminds us, is not to the old covenant, not to a human relationship, technology, or to a political candidate. You have come to the better ministry of righteousness that comes through the life, death, resurrection, and ascension of Jesus Christ. There we consider the more magnificent reality of Mount Zion in verses 22 through 24. He starts in verse 22, but you have come to Mount Zion. You have come to Mount Zion. That's amazing. Not you're going to Mount Zion. You've come to it. The author reminds his audience of where they are. Chase mentioned it just a moment ago. It's this theological term you've probably heard us say a lot. It's the already and the not yet. In a real spiritual sense, maybe because God is outside of time, He sees us as there already. The Bible can say we are there already. If 
Ephesians 2.6 says this, and raised us up with Him and seated us with Him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. We're there. For the true Christian, the hope of heaven is a reality, you guys. God has come to us in Christ and said, I've won. I'm bringing you home. You have a guaranteed victory in Christ. That's amazing. And then he gives seven descriptions of Mount Zion. I don't have time to do a deep dive in all of these. They probably are, could be a whole sermon each. Just consider each seven briefly. Number one, he says, you've come to the city of the living God. There are ultimately only two cities, as St. Augustine has made famous, the city of man and the city of God. In the city of man, people worship many different gods, but these gods are all dead, they're fake, they're man-made ideas. Some are literally made of wood or stone, but I think the core of what they're really worshiping is themselves in the city of man. And then the other city is the city of the living God, the one God who lives, whoever lives. It is the triune God of the Bible, God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, and we have come to his city, which is, number two, the heavenly Jerusalem. Jerusalem was known for being the place of God's special presence. It was a reminder that God would one day fully and truly dwell with his people. Again, it was meant to be a pointer to the heavenly reality, the heavenly place. And the heavenly Jerusalem is where he does that and where we have come. Third, we come to innumerable angels in festal gathering. It's not just humans who dwell in the presence of God, but all of God's angels too many to count, who are in a joyful gathering, worshiping God. Think about that. Anytime someone sees an angel in the Bible, they have a hard time not peeing their pants, right? They, they tremble in fear. These are terrifying spiritual beings. And we're going to be worshiping with them. They have six wings, are they eight feet tall with huge muscles and swords and shields? I don't know. They're definitely not those little babies on the Hallmark cards with the little wings and the harps. Because when people see them, they're scared, right? They're going to be amazing. And we're going to be worshiping God with them. That's going to be cool. Fourth, we come to the assembly of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven. There's a lot there that's pregnant with meaning. I'll be brief. That's a poetic way of saying the universal church. All who have been saved and redeemed by the grace of God. Firstborn is a reference to title, not time. The firstborn son received the biggest inheritance, the blessing of the father. In a monarchy, the firstborn son was the heir of the throne. Every Christian is a firstborn son. One commentator said we are a society of firstborn sons. And we all get the unfathomable inheritance, the blessing of our Heavenly Father, and we are all heirs to the throne. Fifth, we come to God, the judge of all. God is the judge of all. God will judge all. But we who are in Christ don't have to fear that judgment. His wrath against our sin was unleashed on Christ on the cross. 
we will receive acceptance, love, and comfort. Remember the story of the prodigal son, where the younger son is finally coming home, and what does the dad do? He pulls up his tunic, girds his loins, and runs out to his young son, hugs him, kisses him on the neck, gives him, I can't remember, a ring, sandals, and a cloak, right? I think that's kind of like what we'll experience when we're in heaven. And this sounds corny, but I'm going to share my heart because that's what I do with you guys. One of the things I am most excited about is a hug from the Lord Jesus Christ. I can't wait for that. I, I can rarely think about that or talk about that without tears coming to my eyes. I'm just like, when this body dies and I'm there, spiritual hug, or when I get a resurrection body and Jesus' body is as physical as ours are right now, and I just get to hug him, and hear something like, well done, good and faithful servant, I can't wait. And that's what we're going to receive because of what he's done for us. Not fear, we don't fear the judgment. That's really exciting. Six, we come to the spirits of the righteous made perfect. Again, another description of the people of God. For those who die before Jesus comes back, before the great day of the resurrection... We are spiritually still in the presence of God, and our spirits have, will have been made perfect. Another thing I can't wait for. Think about that. We're going to be in the place where the presence of sin is gone. Gone. The reason we come here every Sunday and sing songs about the gospel, and pray to the triune God, and hear God's word preached, and yet still would rather watch the Colorado Avalanche tonight is because of our own sin. The fact that we're more enthralled with sports, or whatever else it is, you use your word, than the God of the universe, is because of our own sin. And someday we'll be there, and that won't hinder us at all. We will never settle again for making a mud pie. We will be absolutely enthralled with God and His glory. And I long for that, and I know those who are in Christ long for that too. And finally, and not least important, we come to Jesus, it says, the mediator of the new covenant. As Christians, we've come to Christ, the sinless Son of God, who through His life, death, resurrection, and ascension has purchased and enacted the new covenant and those who believe in him will be saved. The text says that his blood speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. You probably know the story. Cain killed his brother Abel. And Abel's blood cried out to God for vengeance. But the blood of Christ cries out for his people. Justification, adoption, salvation, imputed righteousness. Brothers and sisters, there is nothing, nothing, no thing better than being on Mount Zion with the blood-bought people of God and angels. And through Christ, we can approach God. That's been all over Hebrews. That's the contrast in this passage. 
Mount Sinai, he was unapproachable. Only Moses could get near. And yet through Christ, we can draw near with confidence to the throne of grace. The author of Hebrews is reminding his audience and us, this is where we've come and it's far superior. Or to use the word we've been using in this series, better. There's a scene in the Gospel of John where Jesus says some hard to understand things, some really confusing things. And many people leave. They stop following Jesus. And he turns to his 12 disciples and he says, are you guys going to go away as well? And you guys know what Peter says. Lord, to whom should we go? Could we go? You have the words of eternal life. We have come to believe and know that you are the Holy One of God. Friends, why do we turn to lesser things? The things that can't save or satisfy or provide safety. Remember where you have come. I thought of a movie scene. One of my favorite books, I don't know if I should be embarrassed because it's all about vengeance and revenge and we're not supposed to be about that as Christians, but it's The Count of Monte Cristo. If you've read the book, seen the movie, I won't ruin the plot if you haven't seen the movie or read the book, but this guy, Edmond Dantes, spends 20 years in prison for something he didn't do. And he meets this old guy in prison who gives him a map to some buried treasure, helps him escape prison. Edmond gets out, he finds the buried treasure, he buys a huge mansion with a big, like, you know, not a California king-size bed, but like a Texas king-size bed. He gives himself the name, the Count of Monte Cristo, and his friend slash servant comes into his room one morning to wake him up and sees that the Count or Edmond, whatever you want to call him, isn't in bed. And he starts running past the bed to find him. And then all of a sudden, whoa, there he is sleeping on the floor. And he's like, what are you doing? And Edmond says, slept on a stone prison floor for 20 years. I had to go back to what was comfortable. And you just see his, his wheels turning, his friend and his servant like, remember where you are. You're in a mansion. You have a huge bed. You can get used to sleeping in the huge bed, but you've gone back to the floor. Why do we do that, friends? We've come to Mount Zion, and we run to the Internet when the race gets hard. Why do we do that? But God gives grace. He's not content to leave us where we are. He's not content to leave me where I am. Every hurdle in the race, he's going to remind me to cling to him and not to go to those things. Brothers and sisters, when suffering comes and when the race gets hard, rehearse these truths to yourself and to each other. Remind each other where we are, where identity lies, where our hope is. Take a moment this morning and today to consider where or what your hope is in. Don't refuse. Remember you've received, that's the third point, the magnificent refusal or reception. Under this point, we'll consider three things. We'll consider a warning, a shaking, and a receiving. Here's the warning. With the reminder of where the Christian has come to Mount Zion, 
to the revelation of God and the person and work of Jesus Christ. It says, do not refuse the command of God. Israel didn't escape when they disobeyed in the Old Covenant. In fact, the whole generation that was there for the giving of the law were not allowed to enter the promised land as a punishment for their disobedience. Now, were they all not saved? I don't think so. I think some of them were saved. But they had a punishment. If they didn't escape during that period of redemptive history, neither will we who have the final and ultimate revelation of God in His Son, Jesus Christ. We must not refuse the offer of salvation. Friends, so often we think of the gospel as only a gracious offer, but the Bible would actually call it a command. It is a gracious offer, but it's a command as well. And in love, I say to those of you in here who don't follow Jesus, the command of God is to repent of your sins and to believe in the gospel of Jesus Christ. To believe that He died for you that God poured His wrath against your sin on Christ on the cross, but that Jesus Christ rose again, the death, death couldn't hold Him, and He ascended back to heaven to the Father, and He's still alive interceding for you. If you repent and believe in that command, you will be saved. You don't have to raise your hand right now. We don't do altar calls. I'm not going to call you to come up. You just do it right here, right now. We would encourage you to talk to someone about that. If someone invited you, you could talk to me. I can point you to one of our pastors here if you want to talk about that. But I offer Jesus Christ, obey God's command to believe in Him and be saved. There have been many warning passages in this book, the book of Hebrews. And without deep contextual study and a a broad and deep understanding of the whole Bible, a Christian could think they could lose their salvation. And I believe, as do all of our pastors, all the pastors in the network, probably most of you in here, that a Christian cannot lose their salvation. Absolutely not. But there are categories in the Bible of nominal Christians, spurious Christians, fake Christians. Judas Iscariot was a fake Christian. He followed Jesus for three years. On the outside, he looked like a Christian. On the inside, he wasn't. For 26 years, I was a fake Christian. I I grew up in church. I knew all the answers. But my life showed that I was my God and I was my master. So the warning should land on all of us. Is my faith real? Do I bear fruit? Do I really follow Jesus? Do I obey Jesus and live for his glory? If you claim the name of Jesus Christ, I encourage you to take a moment to consider your life. Do you pursue sin more, way more than you pursue him? You probably have no cause for assurance this morning. You battle with sin, that's okay. If you wrestle with sin, if you still sin, that's okay. But if you love sin, if you have no conviction when you pursue sin, there's no cause for assurance. I wish someone would have told me that when I was 18 before going into college. If you do pursue him and bear fruit, you can trust that God will never allow you to stop following him. He will never allow you to come to Christ but then refuse him later on in the path. And the warning stands because something is coming. 
That's a shaking. A shaking is coming because time is short. When God first spoke on Mount Sinai, the earth shook. But the prophet Haggai, that's who the author of Hebrews is quoting, says that someday God is going to shake not only the earth, but also the heavens. This is a reference to God's final judgment. And the word shaking made me think of panning for gold. I'm not a gold miner, I've never done it, but I saw movies as a kid and I watched one this week to remember how it was done. But you know how it works. They grab some sediment from the river, they put it in a pan or a sieve, and then waters run through it and they shake it. And all the worthless sediment falls out of the pan or out of the sieve and the gold stays in. Every kingdom of this world and everything that is not connected to the kingdom of God will be removed. It will be shown to be worthless and fall through the pan of God's judgment. And the gold of the kingdom of God will remain. And God has set a day. He's going to do this final shaking. And again, we who are in Christ don't have to fear because of what we've received. We come to the receiving. Verses 28 and 29 say this, Therefore, let us be grateful for receiving kingdom that cannot be shaken. And thus, let us offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe. For our God is a consuming fire. We have received the kingdom. Brothers and sisters, if you have been saved and born again and adopted into the family of God, you've received a kingdom that cannot be shaken. It's a guaranteed victory. And that should cause deep and genuine gratitude to rise in our hearts. We aren't responsible to hold this kingdom together. No scheme of hell nor power of man can take this kingdom away from God or his people. The gates of hell shall not prevail against the kingdom of God. And this gratitude in our hearts should lead to acceptable, reverent, and awe-filled worship. True and spiritual worship should explode out of our hearts. With these truths in mind, how could we offer to God unacceptable, irreverent, or bored worship? And the reality that the text says acceptable worship shows that there is unacceptable worship. It's a whole other sermon I'll be brief here, say a few words about it. Unacceptable worship is worship with near lips but far hearts, or man-made worship, and not worship according to how God tells us to worship Him. Isaiah prophesied of the religious leaders of Jesus' day and said this, This people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. In vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. The third commandment actually forbids this kind of worship. If you don't know the third commandment, it's you shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain. We, th- we So often we think that only means don't use God's name as a cuss word. But it means so much more. Don't claim his name and then blaspheme him. Don't be nominal, spurious, or fake. And speaking of commandments, one of the ways we worship God is by obeying him. The Ten Commandments aren't done away with. They are still a reflection of God's character. We don't try to obey the Ten Commandments for our salvation, but from it. Because of what Christ has done for us, we have the engine and the ability to say, I don't want to have any other gods before you. I won't make any graven images. I don't want to use your name in vain. I want to honor the Sabbath, my father and mother. I don't want to murder, steal, lie, commit adultery. 
Jesus says, if you love me, you will obey me. We must offer true and spiritual worship to God because of what he's done and who he is. And verse 29 reminds us he is a consuming fire. This must be reverent worship. Because he is just as holy now as he was in the giving of the Ten Commandments. Brothers and sisters, as my coaches came to me and my teammates telling us of our guaranteed victory, God has come to us in Christ and guaranteed our victory. His kingdom is an everlasting and unshakable kingdom, and we get to be a part of it. No other kingdom will stand. No other kingdom is worthy of our trust. No other kingdom will give us salvation or joy or comfort. The shakable kingdoms of performance, horizontal relationships, technology, politics, and presidents will not stand. But Mount Zion and her king go forever. And doesn't that make you want to run hard, brothers and sisters, to to walk in a manner worthy of the gospel? To live lives of worship? I can't believe the illustration that I got to share. I think it's perfect. Knowing that I had a guaranteed victory, I still said, man, I want to run hard. And if that's how I feel about a a corny sport, how much more should we feel about that? Through Christ, we've come to Mount Zion. And so don't you want to run hard and live for God's glory to take every scar in the race of faith, to get spiked in the legs, to be bleeding down the legs and say, I'm still going to run hard. Because my king got the scars first. John Bunyan says this, when we consider these two mountains, Mount Sinai, the law, and Mount Zion, the gospel, he says this, to run and work the law commands, but gives us neither feet nor hands, but better news the gospel brings, it bids us fly and gives us wings. If the truth that we have come to Mount Zion through Christ, we have a guaranteed victory does not cause grateful worship and a deep desire to run our race to Zion hard, I don't know what will. Let's pray. Father, we praise you. Love you. Thank you for this amazing truth, for your word. Hebrews chapter 12, for the whole book of Hebrews. Lord, we have have seen so clearly how much better Christ is, how much better the new covenant is. For we who are yours, Lord, we declare that you have written your law on our hearts, not just on stones. We want to live for your glory, and we want to run hard, because we know even now we are in Zion. We are there in your city. We live with angels and all of your people. Lord, I pray for all in the hearing of my voice that they would run hard today and embrace the, the scars and the suffering for your glory, knowing that we will make it. We long for the day, Lord, glorified in our hearts. I pray this in Jesus' name.